Well, I am excited today because we, as a congregation, we get back to Luke. This changes everything. We took a good break. We had Easter, and then we talked about awkward family for a little bit. And now we're getting back to this journey we're on. We're, as a congregation, we're working our way through Luke. It's going to take a while. Get comfortable, right? We're going to be in Luke a little bit. So for a little bit of review, just to bring you back up to speed, this is written by Dr. Luke. He's a medical doctor. He's also a very accurate historian. He was a companion, a traveler with the Apostle Paul. And he wrote a two-volume work. The second part was Acts. We've already studied through that the whole way as a congregation. Now we went to the prequel. Now we're working through Luke, this two-volume work of Luke-Acts. And when we are finished with those as a congregation, we will have covered 25% of the New Testament. Kind of excited for us about that. To remind you, Luke is writing this, he says in his introduction, to the most excellent Theophilus. And what he says is he's laying down an orderly account so that you may have certainty about the things concerning Christ. Why? Because remember, history is not changed by another religion. History is not going to be changed by a body of teaching or some moral commands. History will be changed by an event. It will be God himself invading history. It will be the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This changes everything. In fact, it will turn the world upside down. One of the big changes, we're reminded that Luke wrote with a particular eye toward those who have been marginalized in society. Those who thought they were shut out, they find out that in Christ they are welcomed in. This changes everything. It's a great, great book. It's a pleasure to study it together. Now, so far, we've only been snacking on the appetizers. We're about to get to the main course. See, the main course is Christ's ministry. It's all about Jesus, right? So far, we've been studying our way through the introductory bits. Like, look at these, if you will. There is the prophecy to Zechariah about John the Baptist being born. And then there's the prophecy to teenage virgin Mary, that she will be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, overcome by him, and therefore she will give birth to Jesus the Messiah. Then Mary goes and visits her relative Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, and as a result of that time, she sings the Magnificat. And after that, John is born, and after that, then Zechariah's tongue is loosened, and he starts Remember, there's all kinds of singing going on, right? Zechariah starts singing. Then Jesus is born. He's presented at the temple. Maybe you remember that's when we met Simeon and Anna. And there was this episode where the family went up to Jerusalem for a visit. They, Bad parenting right here, right? Happy Mother's Day. Uh, they, they forgot Jesus, right? They left him at the temple, went back home. Where's Jesus? Turns out he's in the temple schooling the priests. And then John the Baptist was born and he began his ministry. Part of his ministry was baptizing. Of course, that's how he got the name. And he was the one who baptized Jesus. All this is preparing for the ministry of Christ, which is about to begin. But first, there's one more episode of preparation that needs to take place. And that's where we're going to begin our story today in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Look at this with me, if you will. And Jesus, 
full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. You think? (laughs) You think? Like, my story would read this way. And after 40 minutes, he was hungry. (laughs) That's how it would have gone for me, right? 40 days. So he's out there in the wilderness. He's fasting, and temptation is going on. In fact, it gets specific. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. You know the rest of that, right, that Jesus is referring to? Not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We get our our fulfillment and sustenance from God. Second temptation, it says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Third temptation. Here it is. He said, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. One of the things I want you to catch from this, if you were to study this in the original Greek, it's clear like the temptation was really going on for all 40 days. When we read that, it kind of seems to us like he had 39 days in the wilderness and uh, all, all the fasting, and then at the end of it, day 40, temptations. Right? No, all 40 days, there's all kinds of temptation being thrown at our Lord. But how is this temptation? Wait a minute, time out. Is it sin for a hungry man to eat bread? It's not sin. Is it sin for Jesus to turn something that's not bread into bread? He'll turn water into wine. He'll multiply the fish and loaves. How is it? He'll do all kinds of miraculous things. That's not sin for Jesus to do that, right? What, is it sin for all the people of the world to be lumped into one kingdom under the lordship of Jesus? No, that time's coming. That will happen. That's not sin. Is it sin for angels to minister to and support and protect the Son of God? That's not sin either. Where's the sin in this? Are these not all good aims? Are they not all good things? Yes. Here's the thing, though. A lot of our sin is meeting an, a, a, to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. A lot of our sin is meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. It's not about the ends, it's about the means. It's not about the what, it's about the how. We don't want to wait on God and and submit to Him, and we want to take over, and that's a lot of times where the sin comes in. So, no, eating bread is not a sin. 
then why is this a temptation to sin? Because who's trying to call the shots? This is a moment where Satan is trying to get Jesus to stop taking cues from God the Father and start taking cues from Satan. That would be sin. That would be a big problem. This is about the timing of God. So yes, all kingdoms will be under Jesus when God the Father says it's time for that. But this is Satan saying, hey, you know what? He's, God's taken too long. Let's just get this done on our timetable. And that where a lot of our sin comes in? Impatience? That's going on here. This is a temptation to Christ to start to do ministry for his own gain and for his own glory instead of the gain of the kingdom and the glory of God the Father. That's part of the temptation. This is a temptation to insist on a life that is free from pain and suffering and difficulty and hunger. And by the way, isn't that the substance of most of our prayers? That's the temptation here. And instead of humble service and sacrifice, this is a temptation to Jesus to abuse his power so that he can selfishly satisfy his flesh. If he waits on God the Father, he'll get a crown, but first comes a cross. This is a temptation to get the crown without the cross. That would have been a tragedy. It's a huge temptation. All kinds of things are on the table here. It's an offer of pleasure and comfort and health and wealth and security and ease and power and control. It's fame. It's glory. It's all kinds of things. It's all on the table. And to sum it up, those three temptations, look at this, if you will. The, the first temptation is to be fulfilled in the world. Your stomach, your appetites, bread, food. Be fulfilled in the world. Worship Satan, manipulate God. There's the three temptations. And Jesus responds instead with being fulfilled in God, worshiping God, submitted to God. See what's going on there? So that is what happened in the story we just read. Now, what I want to do with that, look, in a little bit, we will apply that to our lives. What can we learn? But first, I'm going to take you to seminary. We're going to do some theology. I'm geeking out as a pastor. You people are like, oh, crap. Why do I have to come today? No, listen, uh, it, it's good stuff. Why? Because there is a lot we can learn about Satan, and there's a lot we can learn about Jesus in this very passage. So we're going to seminary. First, let's talk about Satan. Two things we're going to talk about, that he is real and that he's limited. To the fact that he's real, look at this quote right here. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Maybe you recognize that from the 1995 movie, The Usual Suspect. It's a great flick. They stole that quote. We're not really sure who wrote it first in history, but it is a great quote. It is so true. Satan is real. He was the chief angel, top of the pack. He was not content to keep in place, his place. He rebelled against God. He was kicked out of heaven. He led uh, a section of the angels with him in that rebellion. All those fallen angels are now called demons. That's where demons come from. And they are wicked, and they are ancient, and they are smart. And they are not to be messed with. Now, what I want you to catch from that, they are real, which means just because something is spiritual 
doesn't mean it's good. There can be bad spiritual. There's bad spirits. There's demons. So I, I, listen, folks, the occult is real. Do not mess around with occult stuff. Ouija boards, whatever. Don't dabble in that. Why? Because you know what? You are screwing with stuff you don't understand. You're screwing with stuff you can't control. And you're screwing with stuff that does not have your best interests in mind. Don't mess with that stuff. Satan is real. Demons are real. But here's the other side of it. Satan is limited. Some of what we know about God is that he is omni, omni, omni. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. That omniscient means he's all-knowing. Omnipotent means he's all-powerful. And omnipresent means he's everywhere present. That is true of God. That's not true of Satan. Satan's not like the, the anti-God where he's got... No, he's not like that. He is limited in what he can do. So, for example, he shows up in the garden and he wants to derail Jesus, derail the plan of God. Why not just kill Jesus? Why didn't Satan just kill Jesus? You know why? Because he can't. He's limited. His main weapons are his, he is a liar, right? A deceiver. He's a liar and temptation. Those are his main weapons. So we've got to disabuse ourselves of some things. First of all, quit saying the devil made me do it. He's limited. He can't make you do it. He can tempt you. You did it. You did it. Also, we should be cautious of saying Satan is after me. Let me tell you what. Satan is at the top of the pack of the demons. Okay? Now remember, he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He's limited. He's at the top. And you as a human being, not at the top. <laughs> You're probably not on Satan's radar. Satan's probably not all bunged up about you. Maybe a demon, but probably not the big one. Is it a demon? Well, wait a minute. Another caution. Don't look for a demon under every rock. Total sidebar. Why is it always a rock? Isn't it? Why not a demon behind a tree or behind a door? But it's always, for some reason, demons like to be under rocks. I don't know why. But don't look for a demon underneath every rock. It might not be demonic. It might be you. It might be your flesh. Honestly, that's one of the biblical explanations. It might be your flesh. It might be the world, the fallen, broken creation, the world system. It might be the world that's influencing you. It, it might be God the Father testing you and developing you, bringing hardship into your life. Or yes, it might be a demon. You don't always know. Be careful of making an assumption. And so he's real and he's limited. In order to balance those, C.S. Lewis had a wonderful thing. He wrote the book Screwtape Letters. Love that book. It's awesome. In his preface, he had this to say. There are two equal and opposite heirs into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs. Thread the needle. They're real, but they're limited. Okay? That's about as much as I care to talk about Satan, because I don't like him. Uh, instead, let's, uh, what do we learn about Jesus? He's much more glorious uh, a topic to talk about, so let's talk about Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully human. We see that in disp on display in our passage today. Fully God. Now, J Satan begins his temptation by saying, if you are truly the Son of God, 
Why did he start that way? Remember, Jesus is still dripping wet from his baptism, and the Spirit immediately leads him out into the wilderness. What happened at his baptism? Do you remember? After he came up out of the water, so there's the Son of God. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son. See, if you are the Son of God, you see where it's coming from? But what you see at the baptism then is you see the Trinity. God the Father speaks from heaven. Spirit descends like a dove. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God in human flesh right there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the one true God in human form. So a perplexing question comes up then about the temptation. If Jesus is God in the flesh, which he is, here's the question. Could Jesus have sinned? And it's a thorny one. After all, isn't he God? Could God sin? Well, no, God can't. Can God act out of line with his own character? No, God would never choose evil. God can't sin. Jesus is God. Jesus can't sin. Simple, right? Here's the problem. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Speaking about Jesus, it says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So yeah, he's sinless, he's perfect, he resisted, but he was actually tempted. It doesn't say there that Satan tempted him, it says that Jesus was tempted as we are. How can he be tempted by sin unless choosing sin was an actual possibility? Let me explain it this way. I am not tempted to misuse my fame. Do you know why? Because I'm not famous. I don't have it, right? I'm not tempted to buy a yacht. I don't have the money. In order for something to be a temptation, it has to be a real possibility. So at this point, Jesus is tempted. And what's the point in saying Jesus is tempted unless he could have actually chosen sin? You say, but time out, Pastor. You said he's God in the flesh and God could never sin. What do we do with this? And right now we are in seminary. We are talking about the hypostatic union. That's a fancy term to say that Jesus, at the same time, he was fully God and fully man. The hypostatic union. A way to understand that is this. Think I could break this stick? It's pretty, I mean, pretty easy to break a little stick like this. No problem. Grab my pry bar from my garage. Think I can break this? Absolutely not. I mean, that, that thing, I'll hurt myself. I'm old. Uh, that's not going to break. What we have in Jesus, 100% human, breakable. Could he sin? Yeah. He can be really tempted. At the same time, he's fully God. Could he sin? No way. He's unbreakable. In the hypostatic union, what you have in Christ is Imagine me taking duct tape, because I love it, right? And wrapping these two together. So what you get is a picture of Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, able to be tempted, would never 
never break, would never sin. That's our understanding of Christ from the wilderness temptation. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he was restoring what Adam broke. Adam came on the scene as the first human. We are in Adam. We are born in Adam at least. And he came on the scene and he followed the cues of Satan and he broke it. Jesus is the second Adam. He comes on the scene as the perfect God-man, our Savior Jesus Christ. And he fulfills what the first Adam broke. And that is a huge moment in human history. This is why Luke says this changes everything. This is a big, big moment. And that's why I took you to seminary today. Because Jesus changes everything. You don't. (laughs) I don't. We don't change it. Jesus does. And there's things that Luke is writing in this gospel that he wants us to learn and understand and know about Jesus. And we've got to grab that stuff. Nonetheless, there are certainly some things that we can can apply to our own lives. And for that, what we're going to do then is we're going to talk about wilderness and temptation. Wilderness and temptation. First, let's talk about the wilderness. Let me clean something up. So far, some of you have been confused because whenever you've heard this story in the past, Jesus was led into the desert, right? Same word in the Greek. In the Greek, it's talking about a wild, unruly, uninhabited place. It's difficult to live. It's tough. It's wilderness or desert. Either way, it's the same word, okay? Depends on your translation. So he's led into the wilderness. Now remember, he's still dripping wet from his baptism. He's about to launch his ministry. God the Father, through God the Holy Spirit, says, first we're leading you out into the wilderness. Why? Because in the wilderness, you are exposed and you are prepared. And we'll talk about those two things. You are exposed and prepared. The wilderness moment in your life is so exposing. I don't mean exposed to the elements. I mean, in the wilderness moment, you are alone. You're out there alone. It's just you and God and temptation. And it is so exposing. It is in that moment that what is inside of you comes outside of you. You are revealed, exposed. I've heard it said that who you are when no one is looking, that's who you really are. Right? You're being exposed. You're out in the wilderness in that moment. I remember a moment like this in my life, my freshman year in college. I came to faith in, in kind of middle of high school. So I was just a couple years old in the Lord, went off to college, and boy, I was not a good Christian. Uh, I was not living away. I, I kind of had a foot in both worlds. I wanted to run with the world, and I want to run with God. I knew it was true, and so I'm straddling this. The problem with that is it was tearing me apart. Some of you are there now. You know what I'm talking about. It rips you apart. It's really hard to live like that if you're truly a Christian. And I didn't want to do that anymore. I was miserable. So spring break of my freshman year, I go down to Florida. Not the best place when you're doing this, right? So I'm down on the beach. But, but one night I go out to the beach and it was just, no one was there. It was a wilderness moment for me. I was all alone. I was exposed before God. And I viewed myself as I stood on the shore looking out at the ocean. I was looking into the face of God and I knew I couldn't do this anymore. I knew after this moment I would either walk with God or walk away from God. It had to resolve. That was a wilderness moment. I was being exposed as I was alone with God. It's a good, good thing. Why? Because God doesn't want posers. 
God wants the real thing, the real deal. And in wilderness moments, uh, they are great for that. It's a great opportunity to be real, to be honest. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's hard, I know. But it is an honest moment to get at the real you, who you really are. You're being exposed in the wilderness. But not that only. You are also being prepared. Before God uses you big, you be guaranteed he will lead you right out into the wilderness. And I want you to know, when you are in those wilderness moments, those painful, barren times, God has not abandoned you. He's preparing you. God has not abandoned you. He is preparing you. That is exactly what he did with Jesus. He took him out into the desert. You think the father abandoned the son? No, he was preparing him. That's what the wilderness is good for. So if you are in the wilderness, I want you to lean in. You are in a great time where you are being exposed and you are being prepared. Get ready. Get ready for the kingdom. That's the wilderness. Now, I told you I also want to talk about temptation. As we go towards temptation, I'm going to give you a list of things that I feel like we can learn from Jesus and his experience, how we can apply them when we are being tempted. And the first one is to talk about worship. Maybe that sounds strange to you, but here's why. During temptation, you will worship. You will. Not a question of if. The only question is, who will you worship? And both Jesus and Satan knew it. Look back at the passage. They knew it was about worship in that moment. Jesus was going to worship somebody. And he chose the Father, not Satan. Now, if it's about worship, I want you to catch something here. Let's look at John chapter 10, verse 10 together. This is important. This is Jesus speaking. He'll refer to himself in a bit, but he begins by speaking about Satan. And what he says is, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God wants to bless you. It won't be on your timetable. It won't be according to your wish list, but God wants to bless you, give you life, life eternal, real life, abundant life. He wants to hook you up. Satan is a thief. He wants to steal and kill and destroy and deceive. He is not your buddy. And so why, why in the world would we ever trust Satan, that snake? Edit, edit. Snake, okay. Why would we ever trust Satan? That doesn't make sense. Oftentimes, I'm hurting in my life in some way, and I'll turn to sin to salve the pain. You know what I find after that? I still have the original pain, because Satan's a liar. And now I also have sin and guilt and shame and more pain for more sin. He's a liar. He never delivers. Remember, much of our sin is meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. We're taking our cues from Satan, not from God. And so what happens is Satan comes up and he says, Hey, you know that thing you want? God's not giving it to you, is he? God's not hooking you up. God doesn't have your back. You deserve that. Tell you what, I have a shortcut. Oh, you do? The problem is every one of Satan's shortcuts, they end up being dead ends. He's a liar. He doesn't have my best interests in mind. Let me give you an example. God says immorality, sexual immorality, is harmful. 
Satan says sexual immorality is awesome. They can't both be telling you the truth. Somebody has to be lying to you. Here's the question. Who do you believe? Who will you trust in that moment? It's a worship issue. Who will you worship in that moment? And not just with your words, but with your life, with your obedience. Who will you worship? You see, it's a wilderness experience. It's incredibly exposing and revealing. But at the same time, it's a great opportunity. Don't miss it. It is a wonderful opportunity to worship our Lord Jesus for exactly who he is, to trust him. It's worship. Third, let's talk about Scripture. Because you probably caught that Jesus, when he was in the midst of temptation, he kept quoting Scripture three times. Three temptations, three quotes from Scripture. Here's the thing, though. You probably don't know this. Each time he quoted from Deuteronomy. Now, if I were to pull the congregation and say, hey, what's your favorite book in the Old Testament? Nobody's saying that one, right? Jesus goes there three times. Kind of crazy. Here's the crazy thing, though. Uh, even more so, is this. Jesus is God in the flesh. So every time he speaks, it's the word of God. Why does he need to quote the Bible? Because he's also fully human. And he has a very high view of the scriptures, even Deuteronomy. He loves it, right? And so he knows we need it. Now, uh, the scriptures are very important in the midst of temptation, but let's be clear about what I'm saying. Number one, be cautious. Because notice, Satan also quoted the scriptures from Psalms. He can quote them too. Satan knows the scriptures way better than you. Okay, he's ancient and he's smart. So just because somebody's spitting scripture doesn't mean they're right. They might be abusing it and taking it out of context just like Satan did. Be careful. Somebody comes up to me. When they, when they find out I'm a pastor, oh, well, I believe in Jesus too. Yes, yeah, so does Satan. I don't say it out loud, but I often think it. Satan believes in Jesus way more than any one of us in this room. And he trembles. It is not just about being able to memorize and regurgitate Scripture, saying, I believe in this, I believe. It's submission of our life. That's what Satan didn't have. He didn't submit his life to the Scriptures, submit his life to God. That's different. Which means you don't just quote Scriptures at Satan like it's some Harry Potter magic spell. Like you learn this incantation, you're going to throw it at it's like garlic at, at a vampire, like it hurts them instead. That's not it. Or how about this? Any Monty Python fans? Right? Okay. So it's, it's not like saying it to the Knights of Knee. <laughs> right? The Knights who say Knee, like, like you can't hear, so stop it. Oh, I said it. Oh, you know, like, no, it's not like that. They're not magic words. What is it? It is somebody who loves the scripture, lives the scripture, and, and, and learns it. And because of that, the life is shaped by Scripture. And in the moment of temptation, that fruit comes to bear. That's what we're talking about with Scripture. Thirdly, I want you to keep resisting. I steal the word resisting there from James chapter 4, verse 7. Look at this. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Isn't that a great promise? Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Now, 
The promise is true. The timing is God's. The promise is true. The timing is God's. So, so you're like, well, he tempted me. I resisted. He didn't go away. Think Jesus said that? First temptation came Jesus' way. He resisted. Satan was still there. Jesus could have gone, this ain't true, and given up. Second temptation, Satan didn't go away. He could have given up. He had to resist three times. And even then, it says Satan withdrew, but only till a more opportune time. He was coming back. You got to keep resisting. You can't give up. Men and women, listen, it is going to be a long, hard battle. It's not going to let up until we go home to Jesus. It's going to be tough. Keep resisting. If you've screwed up, you've fallen down, you get back up. You keep resisting. Don't give up. You are in the wilderness. You are being exposed. You are being prepared. He has kingdom work for you to do. Keep resisting. Keep resisting. But you won't. And so the fourth and last thing I want to tell you about temptation is that Jesus is our only true and certain hope. Our only true and certain hope. I told you to keep resisting. Yes, I want you to. Why? Because I want you to become more like our Lord Jesus. Absolutely. But the thing is, my hope is not in you. Nor is it in me. Our hope is in Christ. Remember, religion and moral instruction, it's been around for millennia. There's nothing new about that. That changes nothing. Luke says Jesus changes everything. Why? Because it is in Jesus for the very first time in all of human history that a son of Adam completely resisted and thwarted Satan. It had never happened before, nor since. This is a huge moment in history. This is why Luke is saying, don't miss it, folks. This changes everything. And the ultimate victory would come three years after this as Jesus goes to the cross and the empty tomb. But from the wilderness temptation on, Satan knew the writing was on the wall. He knew he was beaten. So here's what I want you to understand. To be saved, hear this clearly, to be saved, you must... Absolutely, 100%, without fail, completely resist and defeat Satan. You're in trouble, aren't you? So am I. Your only hope is to be found in Christ. Your only hope is to be found in the only one who ever pulled that off. Your only hope is to put your faith in Christ, receive Christ in your life, be adopted by grace as a child of God. Then, then and only then are you in Christ, the Bible says. And therefore, you are in the one who actually pulled it off. That's your only hope. He resisted perfectly. He defeated Satan. And therefore, what he did, his work gets applied to you. No, it's not fair. No, you don't deserve it. Yes, it's grace. It's grace. Our only hope is the work of Jesus, not our work. So here's what I want you to do. When the demons whisper, I know what you did. Do you remember what you did? (laughs) You think God loves you? You call yourself a Christian? How could God love you? How could God forgive you? You hear that? 
What they are trying to do is get you to focus on what you did. I want you to focus on what Christ did. What they're trying to do is to get you to remember your past. I want you to remember your future and theirs as well. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Yes, for our salvation is completely necessary that we resist and we didn't and our only hope is Christ. And we celebrate him. We give him all honor and glory and praise. He did it. He's the victor. And we just want to be in him so that his victory applies to us. Father, being found in him, of course, we, we want to become more like him. You don't need our permission, but, but Lord, you certainly have our blessing. Take us to the wilderness. I know it'll hurt. I hesitate to pray for it. And yet we want you to expose us and to prepare us and to get us ready for the advancing kingdom for our part in that. Would you remind us that you have not abandoned us? You are just preparing us. And we pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.